You are listening to KSKQ 89.5 FM, Ashland, Oregon, and 94.1 FM, Medford, Oregon. It's the fourth Friday of the month. My name is Ed Battistella, and welcome to Literary Ashland Radio. We've got some special guests today, but first, a few announcements. On March 3rd, Victor Lodato's new novel, Edgar and Lucy, will be released by St. Martin's Press. And on March 7th, there'll be a book launch reading at Bloomsbury Books. Saturday, March 4th, the Southern Oregon Willamette writers will feature Emily Grosvenor's Structuring Your Memoir. That's at the Central Point City Hall Council Chambers, 140 South 3rd Street in Central Point. And on Saturday, March 18th at 1 p.m. at Barnes & Noble on Biddle Road in Medford, local author Peter Gibb will give a performance reading of his book, King of Doubt. And back here in Ashland, check out the Shapes of Curiosity Faculty Biennial Exhibition, that's every two years, at the Schneider Museum of Art's Free Family Day, celebrating National Poetry Month on Saturday, March 11th from 10 to 1, Robert Ariano and a group of great poetry facilitators are offering a free family day activity. Drop-in dual-language poetry based on Levi Romero's Where I'm From, De Donde Yo Soy. Um, there'll also be a reading at the Schneider Museum on Thursday, April 6th at 7 p.m. by Lance Olson and Lou Rowan. Lou Rowan is the editor and publisher of the Golden Handcuffs Review and the author, most recently, of A Mystery is No Problem. And Lance Olson is the author of 13 novels, five short story collections, a poetry chapbook, and more. So mark your calendars. And joining me today is Robert Ariano, author of six novels, most recently Curse the Names in 2012. He's a professor of creative writing and emerging media at Southern Oregon University and a frequent guest here. Welcome, Bobby. You know, thanks, Ed. I feel right at home here because I was a founding DJ and host of the Friday show for six years in Dixon, New Mexico on KLDK 96.5. All right, so you know all the rules, what we can and can't do. They call me the man with the radio face. <laughs> and I, I hear you're doing a course on uh, karate for writers as well. Uh, but I really am doing a podcasting course and a radio course that I've, I'll be talking to you guys about again coming spring, I think. Okay. Excellent. Well, today we're going to turn it around and we're going to interview Michael Neiman about his latest book, Illicit Trade, just released by Coffee Town Press. Michael grew up in Western Germany and later received a Ph.D. in international studies at the University of Denver. He's a specialist in global and African issues, the author of an academic book called A Spatial Approach to Regionalism in the Global Economy. And for many years, he taught at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Today, he still teaches, but spends a lot of his time writing thrillers. His short story, Africa Always Needs Guns, appeared in the 2012 Mystery Writers of America anthology titled Vengeance, edited by Lee Child. His novel, Legitimate Business, appeared in 2014, and Coffee Town Press has just re-released that along with his new book. Illicit Trade will be released in just a few days, and there'll be a book release reading and signing on March 3rd at the Schneider Museum of Art at 5 o'clock. So, welcome, Michael. Oh, that's so weird to be here. 
and be at the board and managing the thing and not doing the introductions. <laughs> but yes, I'm glad to be here. Well, and I'm I'm really glad that Bobby stepped yes. in and agreed to uh, help me grill you. We should also say that Bobby was the very first guest on the very first show that we had for Literary Ashland Radio. It's good to be back, but yeah. hey, it's good to see you in the hot seat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about your your protagonist, Valentin Vermeulen, an investigator with the United Nations. Oh. What's he all about? Well, I've always been interested in international suspense and spy fiction. I've been reading those for many, many years. So I like them, but I've always been a little put off by the sometimes underlying, sometimes overt nationalistic ideas, like saving the country, you know. And even John le Carré, whose protagonists are always very ambivalent about what they're doing. In the end, they're doing that. And... I did not want to write that. I did not want to do the kind of saving the country type of protagonist. So I I knew it had to be somebody who did all of the things that protagonists do, but not for flag and country. And so that's, you know, the only organization that I could think of would be the United Nations. And so then I I had the organization and I picked Vermeulen... He's from Belgium, and although Belgium in the past has cast a vast shadow over big parts of Africa, today it's not a country anymore that has any global axe to grind. So I figured he's a protagonist who works for justice in an abstract sense rather than for a country. Mm -hmm. Not working for the Belgian government. No, definitely not. Right. Now, and I love the way you say his name, and I'm going to attempt it for our <laughs> listening audience here, but then you make it better. Valentin Vermeulen. Vermeulen, yep. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, we love, we love this character, and it's good to see him back. We've talked about noir before on this show, and mm-hmm. what, if, what if Vermeulen is a noir character? Would you consider him a noirish protagonist? I think noirish in the sense only that the best laid plans usually fail or don't quite come to fruition. It's not noir in the sense of the atmosphere being dark and brooding. It's more noir in the sense that he's fighting the good fight and more often than not, the outcome is less than satisfying. Hmm. So the, the good guy sort of wins, but the larger circumstances that created the need for the good guy to go to battle in the first place haven't really substantially changed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that qualifies as noir. Mm. He seems to me to be sort of a character who perseveres through disillusionment with the way things are. Yes. And that seems sort of noirish to me. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and things, you know, the, the, when, when things just kind of get worse... That feels that that's part of that noir, that the neo noir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is that characteristic of the UN? Do you think? <laughs> I, no, it's it's more characteristic of him working for a huge bureaucracy. Right. It's a massive bureaucratic structure, and all kinds of as in all bureaucracies, there are all kinds of organizations and sub. Plots and sub things happening, and usually saving face and looking good is more important 
than getting the job done. I just realized we're three SOU faculty members talking about this. We should change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, shouldn't talk, we shouldn't talk about there being Any solution with bureaucracy. All right. Can, okay. we, can <laughs> we cut that part out? <laughs> Well, it's about persevering. Yeah. Through, uh, mm -hmm. That's right. Um, That's right. So, um, so yeah, I, he's, a, he's a sort of fascinating character, and things don't always uh, go right for him. But I guess one of the things that, that I'm sort of interested in is you, you've managed to, to tell a, a kind of compelling story and to, to bring in some um, world politics, but that's sort of despite being trained as an academic. So so you've managed to uh to flourish as a fiction writer. So when did you when did you know you wanted to write fiction and and what's the relationship between writing fiction and sort of writing academic things? I think that in the deep deep recesses of my mind maybe that's been for quite a long time, but I don't think it ever became real until a very good friend of mine, a colleague at Trinity College, Fred File, who you know, published stories with Pushcart Press and novels and so forth, he taught this crash summer fiction writing course. And it was actually a, a community organization at the local library. And he says, you mind if I show up and do this? And he said, nah, sure. And that's the first time I actually wrote fiction in a sort of a classroom setting, and I had a good time doing that. And so then I decided, okay, I'm going to actually enroll and audit a regular creative writing course offered by Lucy Ferris, another one of my colleagues at uh, Trinity College. You know, mm. So I did that for a whole term, just sat there like all the other students did all the writing assignments and so forth. And, and and then I decided, okay, I'm, I'm, and all this time I had plots swirling through my mind. You know, I had just spent time in South Africa, uh, in Durban, teaching a summer course. And so my very first uh, still and probably unpublishable novel took place in Durban, some South African thing. Um, and I, then I moved on and switching from academic writing to Fiction writing for me was recovering storytelling. And I think for me the sad thing about being an academic is that <laughs> a lot of it is storytelling and we don't think of it that way mm -hmm. because it's become so bureaucratized. I, I, the, last, the very last academic article I wrote was on Eastern Congo and... Uh, questions of ethnicity, race, and factors that underlie the conflict there. Because I was drawing on a report issued by the United Nations Panel on Export on the Illegal Exploitation of Congolese Resources. That was the title of the report. And it read like spy fiction. And, and I thought, why, why does this article sound so dry when the subject matter is terrifying? And so... Hmm. So I I chose the fiction writing because it allowed me to do the scary things in a way that's fun to read rather than scary things that are dry. Hmm. You, you remind me and uh, conversations I would have with my academic instructors, not hmm. my necessarily creative writing workshop instructors when I was a student in university. Hmm. We realized we all read literature for pleasure 
even though they wrote, you know, uh, scholarly essays and I was writing fiction. And then a few of them would take uh, turns and try their hand at fiction writing. And frequently it was quite good because all that time we were reading very closely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so it makes me want to raise one of my favorite topics of conversation with other writers about your influences. We've all had that experience in this room, at least, of having a book published and getting to a signing of some kind or an event mm -hmm. at a bookstore. And someone comes up to you and says, Michael, ah, you know, you remind me this writing is so great. It reminds me of one of my favorite writers, and that is... Mm. Now you finish the sentence. Who do you like to be compared with? Oh, I, that seems almost presumptuous. But, but, but when you but hear the name, yes, and I, what's the I, one that makes you feel best? My, my all-time favorite novel is a John le Carré novel, The Constant Gardener. Ah. And, so, mm -hmm. and yet I, I can't be compared to him because I don't write like him. I've tried to write like John le Carré, and it sounds wordy and pretentious. And so I've not done that. I think Elmer James and, uh, not Elmer James, uh, Elmer Leonard, excuse me, mm -hmm. and uh, Lee Child are probably more an influence about the way I write and the pace I do, mm. I keep. So, but I, again, I would not compare myself to them. <laughs> If Valentin Vermeulen and yeah. uh, Jack Reacher met in a bar, what would happen? What would they talk about or would they fight? Uh, I don't think they would fight because... <laughs> okay. yeah, it doesn't uh, seem like a good idea. Vermeulen is not the kind of guy who would, would pick a fight. I, I would love to be compared to yeah. Lee Child too. But uh, <laughs> I think Reacher is not really a human being ah, yeah. because Reacher is a superman. Mm-hmm. You know, he's big, he's tall. I mean, it took, what, 16 novels before he got his nose broken? Right. You know, so in other words, I, I, I wanted my protagonist to be a little, a little bit more realistic. But I think there's a similar sense of seeing when something is wrong and being upset about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both share that sense of justice, but I think with mm -hmm. with Jack Reacher, it's, the, the real mystery isn't how he's going to win the fight. It isn't whether he's going to win the fight; it's how. Yeah, right. Um, that's the real mystery. So, we should probably let our listeners know that they're listening to Literary Ashland. That's right, Literary Ashland on KSKQ, KSKQ. eighty nine point five FM, and we having a wonderful conversation. I'm Michael Neiman, and I'm Ed Battistella, and Bobby Arellano. Okay. So, well, I, I'm going to go back to um, something that, that always sort of interests me about um, novels that are that are about some issue or mm -hmm. um, place. Um, it's how you sort of bring in your specialized knowledge. You've got a, a kind of academic specialty in African issues and international trade. How do you kind of bring that in without it getting in the way of the story? I, I've seen people who've done this poorly And it, it reads like a sort of mashup of sort of a story, sort of a yeah. uh, an article. But but you manage to sort of weave them together. Very sparingly. Uh, my first lesson on this was uh, a wonderful collection of essays published or edited by William Zinser on the art of political novel or something like that. And in it... There was this phrase, if you want to send a message, take out an ad, <laughs> which I thought was, I, I, that, that is in my head. It's just engraved in my mind saying, okay, it's not about the message, it's about the story. 
the, the story is the most important part. But then, of course, more often than not, it's dialogue that allows you to bring these things in and usually arguments about what's happening. And that's a one way, that's a trick I use to bring in factual information rather than do a fact dump, which oh. would be... Mm -hmm. So one character uh, doesn't know too much, another yeah. character knows a little more. You Or they argue with each other about what's really happened and something oh, yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. mm. Argument approach. Mm -hmm. So at the key, the you know, your books is the... Uh, an office called the United Nations Office of Internal Oversight. Services. Is that real or did you, sir? Oh, okay. Did oh. you invent that? No, I wish I could. I'm, I'm not as imaginative as I would like to be, but so no, this is a real office. It was created in 1994 in response to pressure from various members of Congress in the United States about throwing good old taxpayer money down some foreign <laughs> rat hole. Uh, I'm quoting, by the way, uh, a former senator from a southern state. So there's this continued obsession with the United Nations wasting money. And so this Office of Internal Oversight Services was created specifically to audit United Nations operations, and to investigate fraud, mm. hence the investigator. And I came across this rather by accident when reading an article about a bunch of armored personnel carriers standing in Port Sudan mm -hmm. being stuck there because the United Nations Office of Internal Oversight Services said that they were not up to snuff and that whoever was importing them for the Nepalese peacekeepers were engaged in fraud that became right, part of the became part of the business, plot yeah. for legitimate business so in in many ways i have the the advantage that the office of internal oversight services publishes annual reports in which they outline exactly all the fraud that they have investigated and oftentimes that is just sort of the initial clink in my head and then i spin the story that goes oh, with yeah. that oh. So, so it's it's uh, I'm in in many ways it, I could consider it probably cheating. I don't make up my plots completely from well, scratch. This I, is what I all have the legal thriller writers point. do, yeah. <laughs> right? From right. court case. So yeah, you should send uh, copies of the books to yeah. the international uh, to the office and see what they think. I, I have actually contacted them early on in the process and see if they could be put me in touch with one of the investigators and just to have a conversation. I never heard a thing. And so... How about a pop-up book sale in front of the UN <laughs> in New York City? <laughs> yeah, there must, Lunch be a, hour. there must be a way to get I, their attention. So. I'm, I'm sure that there is a whole lot more going on, you know, and I don't think I will attract any attention. I, I'm, I'm still... And I don't is expect to attract the United Nations' yeah. attention. There are bigger <laughs> things to worry about. Did you about. hear that? So if anyone from the Office of in Internal Oversight is listening, you, can, uh, yeah. you know where to reach us. Okay. <laughs> um, I was going to ask a little bit more about your, your process. And I know you, you belong to a local writing group with, with several other mm -hmm. um, fiction writers. And uh, what sort of feedback do you find sort of most helpful from, from other accomplished writers? <clears throat> What really helps? Well, the interesting thing in, our, in my writing group is that everybody has a different specialty, right? There are some people who are really good on commas and grammar. And so that's actually very important useful. Stuff. That's very useful. Hmm. There are other people who really have a good eye for plot. Yeah. Does it work? And so the feedback I get is a mixture of these things. And 
I am so grateful to my writing group because I don't think any of this would have happened without them. As a matter of fact, Tim Wolfworth, the person who started the group, he was the one that suggested I sent the story to the Mystery Writers of America. I hadn't right. even known about this. Mm. And, and that's how that process started. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I, Tim's a great, uh, great resource. Mm-hmm. We're, we're yeah. lucky to have him here in Ashland. Yeah. And uh, you make a point. I think every time I've been part of a writing group, whether in a uh, workshop in a university setting mm-hmm. or among friends and over coffee, I, I identify that person who, or the three people who are the plot. Oh, those people can really give me good feedback on mm-hmm. plot, these on mm-hmm. character. Who do you like to read, Michael? I mean, well, it, we, that may be similar to who you'd like to be compared yeah. to, but there no. sometimes it's different. I just finished a couple of weeks back a wonderful, wonderful novel by Yag Jiasi called Homegoing. It's a story of slavery that starts in Ghana and goes all the way to present day. It's a fascinating tale. I can only encourage people to read it. The first name is Y-A-A and the last name is G-Y-A-S-I. Excellent book. Right now I started something called The Mandibles by Lionel Shriver. Sort of a post-crash novel Uh in the United States. A post-post-crash, I should say. (laughs) You know, whenever I need some really light entertainment, I love reading Carl Hyacinth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. There's, whenever you need entertainment, you know, to find out how wacky Florida really is, uh, it's always fun. You know? If so, you've ever read Carl Hyacinth in Florida on the beach, oh, oh, you I, always take it with yeah, you because yeah. Hyacinth is... A movable feast. We need I, an Oregon Car- Carl Hyacinth, <laughs> I think. I, think I, I enjoy... Uh, William Gibson, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot, yeah, and Elmer Leonard, of course, yeah. and uh, of course Lee Childs, <laughs> yes. yeah. And I think I've read every John Le Carré book there is. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so those are the folks I read. Very cool. I'm mm-hmm. still stuck on on who the Oregon uh, Carl Hyacin would be, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just let Bill that Cameron. hang out there. Bill Cameron. Bill Cameron. Is a good yeah. Okay. I, I'd take him to the beach any day. I, okay. Are you listening, Bill? Yeah, I hope so. I, I need to check in with him. Um, well, I've got the the books here, and I'm mm-hmm. just holding them in my hand, waiting for you to sign them. And they're both by by Coffee Town Press, and they've done a really terrific job. Um, they've got a, a kind of similar look to them. Um, how did you like working with Coffee Town Press? It was such a revelation for me. My first venture into getting legitimate business published was poorly done because I had no idea how to do this. I had a rough idea. You try to get an agent, but you gave up on that because agents are harder to find than $20 bills on the street. So, And, and I found this publisher, and I said, okay, here you go. And they took it, and I loved it, and they put it up. None of that pre-publication preparation. Like a, a month after they accepted the manuscript, it was on Amazon. They mm. did ebooks only, and then nothing happened. And then I realized, wait, this is probably not how it's supposed to go. And I am a member of the International Thriller Writers, and there are a number of members who have this blog tour circuit. So when and any one of them publishes a book, we all write about that book. And I would see these new books coming out, having these blurbs. I'm thinking, how do you do this? How do you get that? 
And when the second novel was ready, I was again pitching both to agents and to publishers who take unagented manuscripts. And I was very lucky that Coffee Town Press was interested. And the process was just wonderful. At first, of course, I was very eager to get it out as soon as possible. And I signed with them a year ago. March 2016 and now the book is coming out and in many ways it was strange to be an author not have a book hmm. that you could show yeah and but six months before the publication date we agreed on the covers they gave me a lot of input in how to design the covers and my wife helped as well getting the color schemes sorted out and then three months before publication, they send out advanced reading copies to various publications. And see, I did not know that. And so yeah. I had a wonderful review in Publishers Weekly that mm -hmm. came out just the yep. 1st of January. So it's been fun. And they are so enthusiastic about the books. They are very supportive. Just it's been great. It's a local publisher up in Seattle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's a beautiful edition. And, you know, people just have to see it and hold it uh, next Friday. Yes. Right? At uh, well, the Schneider Museum during uh, First Friday. During, during First Friday, yes, at 5 p.m. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's in store for the third Vermeulen book? Well, the manuscript is with the publisher. Oh. So it's it's... My my job it is is done. And they're going to do line editing, and I'm going to do those corrections and so forth. So I have there's no I don't know yet when it come, will come out. It is set in Mozambique, southern Africa. So I'm going back to familiar grounds because I spent time in Mozambique myself. And the general theme is land mm. and how to use it and abuse it. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't, can't go wrong with land. Well, and I think we're just about out of time. So I'm going to uh, let folks know that our guest next month will be uh, Steve Scholl, our neighbor over at White Cloud Press. Mm -hmm. And you're listening to KSKQ 89.5 FM, Ashland, Oregon, and 94.1 FM, Medford, Oregon. This is Literary Ashland with Ed Battistella. Robert Ariano, and, and Michael, Michael Neiman. And we'll see you next month.